This week we're continuing our discussion that we started last week on the, the Bible, the body, and the brain. Last week we talked about physical health. Did anybody make any changes to their, to their life as a result of that conversation? Maybe you decided, oh, I'll eat better, or maybe I'll sleep better, or whatever. I guess it's kind of awkward for me to ask you to volunteer that information. So I'll just say I, did, I actually felt convicted myself. And so I actually, a, a, a few nights last week, I was like, I'm going to go to bed earlier and get more sleep. And then that kind of spiraled out of control by the end of the week. But I'm going to get back on it this week. I'm going to get back on it. So today we're talking about mental health. And again, you'll see the command from Jesus to love the Lord your God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, and all of our mind. I want to talk about what exactly that looks like for us. And as we, as we begin to go there, I want to ask you this question. What do you think is the worst earworm song? Somebody hollow one out. Shake it off. Baby shark. It's a small world after all. So my question is like, what is the soundtrack that you play? If you go anywhere in society, if you, you go on a bus, you'll see people with, with their beats on, or you'll see people walking around with their AirPods. If you're anywhere, like a, a city, a college campus, you go to a coffee shop, people are listening to music. They've got their headphones in. The Wall Street Journal even did a story about this. And the, the headline was, sorry, pal, I don't want to talk. The other reason why people wear AirPods. And part of it is the signal that it's sending that like, I don't want you to bother me. But part of it is too, is just our, our constant, I think, need of, of being maybe sometimes stimulated and can be visually, it can be auditory. In this case, it is auditory. But I think too, it kind of plays into this idea of having things on repeat in our heads or in our minds. And when you have a, a song, or let's say you're listening to a playlist, what do you do when you get to a song that you don't want to hear? You hit skip, right? And what do you do if you curate a playlist? What kind of songs do you put on there? Yeah, the ones that you like, the ones that you want to hear. So the problem is, I think a lot of times what we do is when it comes to our mental well-being, our mental health, our mental stability, we have, in effect, songs or playlists that we put on repeat, that we listen to over and over, but they're not always the ones that we want to hear. And it can be our own voice. It can be things that someone said to us at some point in time but we never let it go and we just put it on repeat and we listen to it over and over and we never skip. And so I want to take that kind of idea and use it to propel us into this conversation. There's three things I want to consider as we do this. One is just the idea of having better soundtracks or better mindfulness uh, with this sort of thing. The encouragement that is needed in this conversation for one another. And then the third one that we'll talk about more in depth in a few minutes is get help when, when needed. So when you talk about mental health, I think all of us automatically go to mental illness or, or therapy or something like that. And that is certainly a component of it, but it also is just, it is just well-being and it is just, how do we talk to ourselves? How do we listen to what's going on in our heads? And like I said before, what's on repeat? What's on your playlist and what do you skip? We tend to not skip the negative voices, the negative things that we have in our heads. Most people force themselves to listen to their own critical voice. We have a playlist of criticisms and we keep it on repeat. So what does it look like then to love God with all of our mind? There's a great passage in the book of Romans, where Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve what, is God's, what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so I want to talk about that. Like, what's this idea of renewing our mind? And why, why is that important in this conversation as far as what it means for us as believers, as people who follow Jesus? Well, he touches on this earlier in that same letter. 
where he says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And that is the, the point that I think Paul is making in this whole letter is the idea of being conformed to the image of God's son, conformed to the image of Jesus. So we were made in the image of God, right? We tarnished that at the fall. It's been corrupted by sin to some effect. And now we are being remade. If we are reborn by the spirit through the power of Jesus, we are being remade into the image of Christ. That's going to affect our physical health. That's going to affect our mental health. That's going to affect renewing our minds. That's why this is an important conversation to have. He also talks in Philippians chapter four, this idea of rejoicing in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So again, this idea of renewing our minds, of setting our minds on good soundtracks, so to speak, that's kind of all coming into play here. And I want to talk more about what that means. So we talked again last week about physical health. There are links to your physical health and your mental health. And I'm not just saying this, this is like being studied in medicine and in science. Uh, we are learning more and more about that. There are some who will say like, we don't exactly know why. We just know that our mental health and our physical health are linked and they affect one another to some degree or another. Now, obviously, if you can think of, you know, you go to the doctor, you get a bad diagnosis. They say you have cancer, you have some kind of terminal illness. That'll probably affect your mental health for sure. But also the things that you do physically affect your mental well-being. Um, C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, The, the Screwtape Letters, which is a, a book, if you've never read it before, the premise is that there is a sort of a head demon who's writing letters to a, a surrogate demon about a particular individual and like how to disrupt that individual's walk with Jesus. One of the things he says is, at the very least, persuade them that their bodily position makes no difference in their prayers, for they constantly forget what you must always remember, that they are animals and whatever their bodies do affects their souls. And he talks more about this in some of his other writings, but the idea that he conveys is it actually, like our posture is important, even in things like like prayer. He would say it's very important to to consider your posture when you, when you are praying. Are you laid back? Are you relaxing? Or are you in a state where you're saying both with your mind and your body that you're a servant of God? So he would say to pray on your knees. Now, I don't do that myself. Uh, I probably should, but I'm also getting to the point where being on my knees like hurts more and more the more time I spend on it. So uh, we'll talk more about aging next week. But I, I do think it's a worthwhile thing to consider. Also, the idea of singing. So Mike is in the room. I was hoping you'd be here for this. What do you do in worship? And this is a real question because I think singing is something that is good for our souls. There is a link between singing together, singing among a group of people. And yes, in worship settings, but also outside of that. Uh, but there is something that is good for us when we do that, when we sing together. So I would encourage you, if if you are in worship, whether in this room or in our sanctuary, and you don't participate in the singing, I would encourage you to do that because it actually is medically and scientifically, and I would say spiritually, good for you. Uh, there's also an effect called the priming effect or the ideometer effect. The ideometer effect is basically how Ouija boards work. Uh, they're not they're not like a pathway into the demonic or whatever, but it is. it does sort of get into your subconscious a little bit or the priming effect. Basically what that is, is this, and in, in, in social science, there is some debate about exactly how it works or whatever, but 
what they have found is there are links to things that you think about and then how you act and vice versa. This was done by, a, I think, a Yale, uh, a Yale psychologist or a, a Yale professor. He did a study where he asked people to look at a certain set of words, and one group of people was giving a set of words that were associated with being old, like words like slow or wrinkled or Florida or whatever. And then they asked them to go to another room, and that was where the real test actually began. And the people that had the old words moved slower toward, to the other room. And then another a group in Germany reversed that and said, well, let's ask people to move slowly first. So we had one group that we asked to intentionally walk slower than the other group. And then we asked them to go to a room and identify words. And the, the group that had walked slowly went into the word exercise, and they were the ones that more quickly found words that related to being old. And so there was, there's debate over how much there is like an actual link to that, and it depends on who you read, on how much they sell that. But basically, the idea is that there, there is some sort of link between the way we think and the way we act, and it's, it, one can feed the other, and, it, and, and they work kind of both ways. Uh, Johnny Cuff, in his book Soundtracks, he says this, when Herbert Benson, a Harvard physician, studied the effects of mindfulness on cardiovascular health, he discovered two things that had the greatest impact. The first was repeating a phrase, which is another way to say a soundtrack. Repeating a phrase deliberately to yourself for a set period of time. The second key was gently bringing yourself back to the phrase by saying, oh well, whenever you got distracted and thought about something else instead. The oh well was an important part because it was a non-judgmental kind way to refocus your mind. Uh, basically, he ta he's talking about this Harvard physician, and I kind of chuckled when I read this because this is an old Christian mindset in prayer called centering prayer. And this is an exercise where you think of you think of something that you want to concentrate on. It could be a phrase, it could be a word, whatever. But you spend time in prayer, just thinking and meditating on that one thing. And as you get distracted, you come back to it. And it's just this idea of again renewing your mind, refreshing your mind, thinking on things that are true, that are noble, that are praiseworthy. Okay, so this kind of concept has years and years, centuries of Christian practice and Christian teaching. But it also, I just, I chuckled that it was verified by a Harvard doctor as well, just saying like, hey, we, we found that this is actually effectual. So again, what does it look like to love God with our mind? Let's go back to this idea in Philippians. Paul says, I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard to everyone else that I am in chains for, for Christ. So to give you the background of this letter that Paul's writing, he's, he's writing to the church in Philippi. If you remember in Acts chapter, I think it was 16, Paul was in Philippi and he was put in jail and an angel came and, and opened the jail in the middle of the night. The Philippian jailer freaked out because he thought he'd lost his job. He thought all the prisoners had escaped and actually Paul was inside singing hymns with the other prisoners and it led to the Philippian jailer coming to faith in Jesus. So that's the beginning of this church that he's writing to. So now he's in prison again, this time I think in Rome and, and he's asking or he might be just under house arrest, but he's under the Roman authorities. But he's saying like, hey, like, yes, I'm in prison, but what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. And I think about that all the time because when I, when I get into situations myself and I've never been in jail or arrested, I see Jacob in the back, that could change today. But I, I would think of my mentality, I would so quickly get negative about that. And I would so quickly say, God, I was doing what you've asked me to do, what you've called me to do. Why am I, why am I here? But Paul demonstrates, not only does he teach us to renew our minds, but he's demonstrating this. And then he encourages the believers that he's writing to, to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And he goes on to, to kind of list what it is that Jesus does for us. He considers himself 
or makes himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant. So in other words, Jesus looks at us and looks at our predicament and says like, I can help them. I can, I can be of service to them, right? Like he sees the need that he can provide for us. And then he goes on, Paul goes on to describe the things that Jesus does physically. So there's a mentality there, but then there's physical acts there with what Jesus does. And he's asking us as believers to have the same mindset as that. So it's a mindset where you don't think of yourselves as better than other people, but, but also realize you have, you have a proper view of where you are in the state of, of God's economy. You need God. You need Jesus. You need him to come and have done this for you. But also having that mindset is realizing that once you've been given that grace, you can provide help to others. Your presence can be a, a help to others as well. One thing also that, go, that talks about this or, or that Paul demonstrates with this is the idea of encouragement in community or friendships. Again, this is something that scientifically we know is very beneficial. We know is very helpful towards our mental well-being, toward our mental health. It's also one of the things that's the very hardest thing to do in life. It's one of the things you learn to do in kindergarten and it's scary and it's intimidating, but it's also it's scary and intimidating when you're 50, just as much as it is when you're five. But it is important to our, again, to our mental well-being, to, to how we interact with our world, how we view ourselves, how we view others. As much as Paul had an understanding of where he fit in the grand scheme of things and the fact that he, he would call himself the worst of sinners or the chief of sinners, he also realized he had something to offer the other believers. And he often would spend time encouraging them. He would often spend time saying, I pray for you. I am grateful for you. We are more than conquerors, he would say. He would say, you've been bought at a price. He would say, grace abounds, so should we go on sinning? Absolutely not, because you're no longer a slave to sin. You're a slave and a servant of, of God, the, the giver of life. So he would spend a lot of time encouraging folks. And that's kind of where I want to land on this particular topic is let us give each other space to be vulnerable. Let's have, you, you are in small groups together. I want to encourage you if, you, if you are not already, to really work on your friendships in there and really work on at least having somebody in there that you are vulnerable with. And what I want to encourage you to do is be vulnerable about maybe sharing your bad soundtracks. What are the things that you tell yourself? And if someone shares that with you, I want to encourage you to encourage them that that's not how you see them at all. Like John Acuff again talks about having uh, a friend who uh, would, would oftentimes say like, I'm the worst mom ever. And he would say, you're not the worst mom ever. Number one, that's probably Hitler's mom. So you're, and he said, but that's what we do in friendship is like, we, we're vulnerable enough to share. Like, here's, here's what I struggle with. Here's how I view myself. And doing that frees us to say, no, like you're really, you're not like that at all. And, and then there's a give and take in that, in that relationship. And so I want to encourage you to do that more. Do you guys remember the app Shazam? So you probably, you might still use it. I still use it sometimes. Well, oftentimes I'm now using my phone to play music. So I know what's on there, but Shazam was an app where if you were out in public, you heard a song, you could open your Shazam and you could press the button in the middle and it would tell you what song was playing and then it would archive it so that you could go back to it later and you can add that song to your playlist or whatever. One of the things that uh, John Acuff and other social scientists recommend doing is, is stockpiling uh, some of these good thoughts, maybe some good phrases. So if a friend says something nice to you, like actually save it, to write it down, to put it in an album on your phone. If you see something that's encouraging to you or that makes you feel good, snap a picture of it or a screenshot of it and stick it in an album on your phone. And when you go to mindlessly scroll, instead of scrolling social media, which is probably going to more negatively affect you than not, go to your album and just look at that and re renew your mind that way, feed yourself that way. So do that in addition to something like centering prayer. 
I do want to offer one caveat, and then we're going to have a, uh, a panel discussion together. But I do want to say as well, positive thinking gets a, a, a bad rep or, or a skeptical eye a lot of times in society. And I think for good reason, because I think a lot of people use it to say, you can be a success in business or in life or whatever if you just have a positive mindset. And if your goal is to be a success or whatever, then that's not a healthy approach. Like, like seek being healthy for the purpose of being healthy. The other thing I will say is use the Bible and use scripture and use fellow believers to help renew your mind. But that's not going to be the end all be all, particularly if you do have a, a mental illness. Now you can do it to encourage you, but it does not equal professional help. Uh, going to friends does not equal professional help. And sometimes we do need that. And sometimes we need that seasonally. Sometimes we need that long-term. So that's something to be aware of in this, in this conversation as well. If you're not a licensed therapist, which most of you in the room are not, then the help that you can provide is the equivalent of giving your friend a Band-Aid, but you can't perform surgery, all right? So if your friend needs a surgeon or if you need a surgeon, you need to go to a professional surgeon for that sort of thing. So that there's a, I, I wanna offer that caveat as well. So there, there are things where, yes, we go through a, a breakup. We have a bad day at work, whatever. Friends can help us walk through that, but there are things that are, more more demanding i think sometimes of of things that that would require professional assistance so i want to talk a little bit more about that how do you identify that we're going to have a panel discussion with laura frederick my wife emily lemons and morgan stark so i'm going to invite them to the stage if y'all will give them a hearty welcome and, and let's talk about this some more thank you all for being a part of this so i'll start with question one uh, tell us who you are and where we might see you around town or around church, and we'll start with Morgan. Okay. I'm Morgan Starks. Um, I go to First Fellowship. I'm also in the Friends and Followers class and um, the Wednesday night Evo with the girls. Uh, I'm Laura Frederick. Uh, I'm a therapist at the Vine Pastoral Counseling Center, and I'm excited to be here. I'm Emily Lemons. I'm John's other half, better half. I don't know. Um, I, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Um, and I am not a licensed therapist, but I am. But you're married to me, so that qualifies. Well, really. I'm just kidding. You said it. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I do have, um, kind of a background in, in more child development, um, and that kind of thing anyway. Um, and around church, you will see me, um, in the young adult, inexperienced adult YP class. And, um, I have not been in a while, but used to lead, um, some in first fellowship. And um, that's it for right now. And helping at Kids Camp this week. Oh, yeah. Kids Camp this week. Anybody going to be there? Anybody? No? No. <laughs> uh, let's, let's, let's go to question two. So one word that gets mentioned a lot these days is the word toxic. And we'll hear people say workplaces are toxic, relationships are toxic, people are toxic. So I want to ask you all, when is the word too loosely thrown around? Because if everything's toxic, then nothing's toxic. We can't identify what really is harmful, what really is toxic. So when is it too loosely thrown around? And when should we take it seriously? And then how can we identify if we are in a toxic environment ourselves or maybe that we are enabling or creating one? I'll turn that over to you. I can start. Um, so the word toxic, I do believe it's used um, very loosely, especially even more over the last few years. Anytime we feel uncomfortable, our expectations aren't met, um, we might say that it's a toxic environment, a toxic relationship, when really it's not. But those things really do exist, so it makes it um, pretty hard to distinguish um, you know, what is really toxic from what's not. If you are in a toxic environment, whether that's a relationship work, um, normally there is... Um, 
continuous manipulation involved, poor communication. It's consistently negative. Um, if you're in that environment, sometimes it's hard to identify it because one of the factors is you might get questioned and you might almost question yourself, am I really seeing things the way they are? But when you're around toxins, um, those tend to follow you. So let's say for work, you think it might be toxic. Unless you're a very, very healthy person with extraordinary coping skills, you're probably going to take that home with you. So your sleep patterns might be messed up. You might not be sleeping very well. You might be even more irritable than normal. Um, eating patterns change, maybe some symptoms of depression. So those would be kind of things to look for with that. If you're enabling or creating one, again, that can be something that's really hard to um, see in yourself. But a big thing is, am I being empathetic in this situation? If you feel like there might be a lack of empathy, maybe you are being part of the issue and can um, look further into that with somebody that you trust. Laura, do you have anything you would like to add to that? Yeah, I, uh, I really agree with what you shared. I mean, I think looking at the, you know, if you're trying to identify am I in a situation that's kind of a, a relationship or an environment that's toxic, um, considering the fruit, you know, are you seeing the fruit of the spirit present, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, or are you finding yourself just experiencing a lot of confusion you're noticing just kind of an, an enduring sort of pattern like we're all gonna make mistakes or have kind of oops moments but is there kind of this enduring pattern where there's harshness or confusion or manipulation or dishonesty that just doesn't you know it's just persistent and so I think looking at the the fruit that you see in a dynamic is part of what helps you kind of discern is this is this toxic or is this not do you have anything to add? I don't think so. I guess yeah. the only thing that comes to mind is um, because I do come from more of a child-centered, you know, the phrase that I use all the time is worry about yourself. But I, I do think that, like, you know, we have teenagers, and I think that there's this, like, casual way to throw out toxic or narcissist, right? Like, people, everyone wants to call somebody else a narcissist. And so, like, I, you know, every day I say about 15 times, like, worry about yourself. But I do think that in, in some ways, like, we try to self-diagnose other people a lot more than just looking inward and making sure that we're doing the things that we can to be healthy, right? So I don't know if that kind of goes along with that. Everything that you said was about being aware, you know, of how it's impacting ourselves. So yeah, I think there's a certain degree of holding grace for people to be human. And I think there is a tendency these days to, to throw out the word toxic, that someone's toxic or a church is toxic or whatever, because they've said something I don't like or that I don't agree with. And I think you just, you have to be careful there because certainly people and churches can be toxic environments, but I think we, we also have to just hold grace for all of us to, to make mistakes, to hold different opinions, but still love one another. And that I think too, you know, one thing I didn't say earlier, but I think as individuals, I think we tend to be harder on ourselves in our own minds, but as groups, we tend to be harder on other groups. So we'll, we'll think like, well, we're the ones that are okay. It's everybody else that's not in the room. That's the problem. And so I think there's, you know, there's no balance there. I think individually we have to have a better balance of ha having a better view of ourselves. But as groups, we probably need to think less of ourselves as groups and realize that like we're, we're humans. Everybody else is humans. We're all uh, the chief of sinners, as Paul would say. Um, so I, I don't know if uh, that kind of, and you and I have this conversation all the time, Emily. So uh, I, I would just throw that in on top of uh, what you all said. I'll start this one with you, Laura. Uh, what benchmarks or traits can people identify to help them know when they or a loved one needs to see a professional? Um, what should people need of professional help expect of friends and loved ones? And what boundaries should loved ones set in these kind of relationships? This kind of goes back to the Band-Aid versus surgery principle that I shared earlier. So if you could elaborate more for us on that. 
Yeah, absolutely. So when you're thinking about kind of what are some signs that it could be useful uh, to pursue some professional help, I think there's there's two things that really stand out for me. One is if you feel like you are kind of stuck uh, in a feeling or a negative thought pattern and your usual ways of kind of coping or promoting change just don't seem to be working. So in other words, it kind of feels like you're on a hamster wheel and there's not a way off. That can be a sign that pursuing another perspective through um, some professional help could be useful. And then the other thing that I would say is if you feel like something that you're experiencing is, I guess you could say kind of outside of the realm of normal, normal is subjective, but there are certain kind of cultural expectations. Like if I've lost a loved one three years ago and I find myself crying for one to two hours a day, every day, that that kind of falls outside of a, a normal kind of way that you might experience grief. So that's a sign, you know, it would be good to get some input into this. So if it's kind of falls outside of the realm of normal and is limiting, you know, um, if a five-year-old sits down at the piano and plays Beethoven, that's not normal, but it's not limiting either. Um, if a 15-year-old is washing their hands, you know, 30 times a day, that's kind of outside of the realm of normal and it's also limiting. So that's a sign that it could be good to interact with a professional and have someone with an outside perspective and experience and training kind of come into that situation and give counsel. Very good. Maury, would you have anything to add on top of that? Um, pretty similar viewpoint. Um, I would just say knowing yourself and knowing people around you, you have a good, or you should have a good understanding of what your baseline is, what's your normal behavior, kind of what you're saying. If you start over time consistently acting outside of that, those are red flags. And if there's multiple red flags, that's when you might look to see a professional, you know, disturbances with your sleep patterns, um, you or enjoying the same activities you used to for long periods of time, hopelessness, um, things like that, that would be to see a professional. And correct me if I'm wrong, is because I'm not a professional, but the, my understanding of it would be, you know, it also could be very, very much a seasonal thing. I mean, it, in the same way that I can, I, I might break my arm and I'll need to go to the doctor and I'll need to get it reset and put it in a cast and all that thing. That's a, that's a seasonal thing. Uh, and so there can be times as well where you, you could have seasons of, you know, Postpartum depression is is a big one. Um, Post traumatic stress, I think that that can emerge at certain seasons, and that can be a life lifelong one as well. But the hard thing with it is, if I break my arm, I know I've broken my arm, you know. And so there's a there's that physical part of it that's like, oh yeah, yeah I need to go see someone. But having I think identifiers like you all shared, I think is a key part of of realizing because it's the internal things that you can't see that that you have to uh, be able to to reckon with. And and hopefully, if friends, if there is some abnormal uh, ways of dealing or coping with things. Hopefully you, you do have friends or relationships with folks who can identify that. How would a friend in a kind way make a suggestion that someone might need help that the friend cannot provide? Carefully. <laughs> but I mean, we have a, you know, a, a baseline in scripture. It says, you know, we're called to speak the truth in love. And I think if you know that you have a, you know, a significant and deep relationship with that person where you can speak into their life in a, a biblical way, that's kind of a, a big factor in making that call. Awesome. Well, I'm going to ask this next question to Emily because uh, many people don't know, uh, not only is Emily married to me, but she does have a, a degree in psychology and particularly in, in child psychology, child development. You have a master's in child's education and, uh, and, and work with children who are kind of preschool age. You were the education director at the Creative Discovery Museum when we lived in Chattanooga, if you're familiar with that. So 
you're up to speed as much as you can be, I think, in that particular area as far as the education of children and that sort of thing. So what are some things that we need to be aware of in childhood development and whether it's our own things that, you know, we went through as children that either maybe we, we, we didn't get that we should have gotten or maybe we got and we forgot. Um, or maybe it's for those who have their own children, what are things to be aware of that contribute to adult mental or emotional well-being? Okay, I'm going to look at my phone because I made notes, not because I'm texting. Um, so, sorry, I'm a frog in my throat. I was actually just saying earlier, talking to some fellow teachers that I feel like, especially in the last few years, like all I, all I teach is social emotional. Um, that's, that's pretty much like 90% of my day because it is so important. And because it is, I think, I mean, I've been doing this for almost 20 years and it is becoming more of, um, of an important issue. Would you, I see heads nodding, (laughs) um, in the classroom and just in, in ongoing but um, so off, when, when I was thinking about this earlier, the first thing that I would say is rightfully so, there's kind of a new emphasis on mindfulness in, in the classroom and in especially early childhood. Um, mindfulness being just what you talked about earlier about that centering prayer, that kind of stillness, awareness of, oh, wait a minute, like I'm, I'm feeling off. Why is that? And being able to tap into how we're feeling. So for me, it's teaching kids, huh, you're running around the room. Let's stop for a minute. Why do you think your body's so out of control? oh, okay, so-and-so did something to you. How are you feeling? You know, naming emotions. Um, what I think is really interesting about that is I see us now as adults drifting in the other way, and we are absolutely trying to do anything but name our emotions, right? So we are scrolling or drinking or you're, whatever you're doing to distract yourself from being aware of what's going on in our bodies and in our emotions. So um, I think a return to that mindfulness, whatever that looks like, and I think for Christians it really is definitely prayer centering ourselves on on who who's we are and who we are and what's going on in our lives um for me that personally is a lot of we've talked about this a lot but is is gratitude it's it's a lot of um, practices like that it's being outside it's things that are unplugging i think that are not distracting but more centering if that makes sense another thing that i'm thinking of with with the children is um I would much rather have a child in a classroom that is willing to try and fail 8,000 times versus one who has unrealistic expectations of perfection. And I think that that has taught me to look at myself and the way that I talk to myself differently every day because there's a lot of research. If you're interested in, I love, um, I love research in brain development because to me, and you've heard me say this if you've ever been in the Sunday school class with me, but Really, to me, it just shows me God's design, right? It just proves what we already know, that how God is, has created us. So, um, sorry, that was a side note. But um, I have to go back to my notes. Um, but there's a lot of research about growth mindset, resilience, grit, lots of different things that you might call it. But really what it means is if I think I'm smart and I define myself as smart and then something's hard, then I've, uh-oh, I've run out of smart, right? So, like, I'm just going to quit. Versus if I think that I'm capable of trying then I'm going to give myself grace when it's hard. And I'm not going to be like, oops, I'm out of smart. I'm out of capability. I, I'm going to say, I've been in hard spots before. I can do hard things. I'm going to I'm gonna conquer this. So we teach that in kids really early on. And if a kid comes to me and they're upset because they, they didn't make their picture right and they keep throwing it away, that's going to be a really hard thing to conquer. And um, I think as adults, I'm sure if you take a minute, you can think about maybe the ways that you talk to yourself or the things that you've thrown away or given up on because they're not perfect. And I think that's an area where we can give ourselves, um, start talking to ourselves with growth mindset language instead of fixed is what they call it, fixed mindset. Sorry, you guys chime in if you hear anything else. But, um, yep. One more thing, um, you talked about the um, oh well with the centering prayer. Um, one thing that I do, kids definitely, you know, they can't really 
they're still learning a lot of executive functioning. So they're not able sometimes to have working memory where they're holding on to one thing and they're, and they're thinking about something else, right? Which is why every young child that you've ever known interrupts all the time. And it's also why if you are someone who might have some neurodivergence, why, why you still may have a hard time remembering what you're going to say or interrupting. Like I, I'm constantly like, I don't want to, hold on. <laughs> but it's because it's hard to have that working memory and you want to get whatever you're thinking out. Um, for kids, the same way, just everything that's coming to them, I, I a lot of times will have to have them whisper their thought into their hand and hold on to it. But sometimes that really helps too. If there's something that's on loop in your brain, that soundtrack, if you can't get it out, seriously, the physical act of being like, okay, I'm going to whisper this into my hand, I'm going to hold on to it. And maybe you can open up your hand later on. But it really does sometimes help to, the other thing that I say is, okay, you guys, we got to grab the remote. We're going to change the channel in our brains right now. We're stuck. That has helped with our kids. That's helped me sometimes. Like I've got to physically turn the dial and figure out something else to think about. So sometimes talking to ourselves like we're five, at least for me, <laughs> is, a, is a help with my own mental health and, um, and maybe some lessons we can learn from, I don't know, brain development and kids. <laughs> yep. I don't have anything to add. That bleeds into my last question um, because I want to ask you all, like, what are some resources or processes that you would recommend for everyone? And what has been helpful for you in your own journey with your own mental well-being? Uh, I'll just point out a couple real quick for me and then we'll turn over to the room for questions. But a book called Beyond the Spiral, which is about, it was written for students, but it also kind of bleeds over into young adulthood. And this is the one I've referenced a couple of times, Soundtracks by John Acuff. It's a really helpful and accessible book. Uh, it's not like overloaded. He does use a, a researcher to help him with some of the medical and scientific things, but then he, he kind of blends all that with his own personal experience and the experience of people that he knows. So let me ask you guys, like what are some resources that you would recommend or, or things that have been helpful in your own process? Um, so I'm a counselor, but I've also been to therapy. So I'm a big supporter of that. And I would say, um, even if it's not a surgery level type of thing, you can still go and you can get counseling. Um, even if you feel like you're a fully healthy, everybody can benefit from that. And there's a lot of resources and support out there. Psychology Today is a really good website that shows you counselors, psychiatrists, um, other professionals in your area and really lets you, um, filter out exactly what you might need. There's a lot of online platforms as well. BetterHelp is a big one um, where if you don't even feel comfortable going in that first time into the office, you can have therapy right from your home. Also a great uh, mindfulness resource that I've used with a lot of patients is the Mindfulness Movement on YouTube. It's a channel. They have all kinds of different meditations and um, guided scripts for anxiety, depression, really anything you can be going for. Um, between five minutes all the way up to probably an hour. So those are just a few things that I look to. Yeah, and I would echo everything that you've said. I um, I am a therapist, but I've also been in therapy, and that has been so incredibly helpful. And, you know, pursuing resources that are going to help you grow emotionally and spiritually together are really important. One book that I recommend a lot that I think does both of those things well is uh, Living from the Heart, Jesus Gave You by Jim Wilder. That's a great resource. And... I would also just say, you know, being intentional about allowing yourself to connect deeply uh, with others, to be known and to be vulnerable, and to also try to know others well. It's a, it's a two-way street, and that really promotes health and promotes growth. Um, I kind of already talked about just being outside is a huge one just for me, just connecting to nature. But as far as resources, I love um, I love the Balance app. It's free for a year. It's also mindfulness and meditation things. Um, I actually use another app to kind of guide my gratitude. There used to be one called three things every day, 
I don't know if y'all ever saw that, but I use one second every day. It's actually a video clip, but it's just something that I use instead of posting it and curating it for Instagram or anything like that. Um, it's just for me, but it's like a snapshot of something that's just beautiful or meaningful or, or whatever that day. And then there's, there's other, um, I'd be happy to share anything like that with y'all, but I think that what's influenced my, um, as far as books, I don't know. I'm sorry. I didn't even prepare that one. I devour them, but, um, I would say there's the study that we did a few years ago. If you were in that class, we did Looking for Lovely with Annie F. Downs. And it was a really, she used the Transforming Your Mind. Um, it's a great Bible study and book to read. It's a great one for the summer. Um, and just talks about that that kind of fixing your eyes on on what is true and noble and good and right. So, Awesome. Let's see what questions our folks have. So let's ask this top one on the slide. How do you think mental health and spiritual warfare is related or not related? Um, I think there is a link. I mean, we know that Satan is the father of lies. And when we're experiencing negative beliefs or perceptions of ourselves, there can be a spiritual component to that. And then it's also important to not over-spiritualize something that is more emotional in origin. So I think there is discernment of like, what is sort of the foundation of this experience that I'm having? Is there's there an interconnection of these things connected? Or that's where kind of pursuing a Christian counseling perspective can kind of help with that discernment, I think. Yeah, I, I would say, just from the spiritual side of it, it's a hard definition to, or it's a hard thing to define, I guess I would say, because that you know, we don't have entire descriptions of what exactly spiritual warfare encompassed or what demon possession encompassed in Scripture. There's not a, a broad brush that's painted about what are, what are the signs of that or whatever? It's just kind of casually um, just saying, you know, this person was possessed. You know, we don't know exactly how they knew that or anything like that. And then obviously they didn't have the the medical knowledge that we have in mental health. So I would say there's probably a degree of relation, but it, it, I would be skeptical of anybody who, who would tell you they knew exactly what it was because we're just, we don't have a lot of the information that would have been assumed or would have been sort of institutional knowledge, for lack of a better term, for people who, who would have been around for the stories that we read in Scripture, and then they don't have the kind of medical knowledge that we have as well. So it's it's a little bit like, uh, you know, kind of grasping in the dark to some degree. I think we can know some things, but I think knowing entirely, I, I would be, um, I would have a, a hard time with someone who, who said they knew that. Well, if you talk about the same thing you talk about with surgery and stuff, like even if it is spiritual warfare, like if, I mean, we still wouldn't be like, well, let me pray for your broken arm and then just leave it at that. So... You know what I mean? So, like, I don't know that. I mean, I think you can still pray and you can yeah. still rally and, and 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 use. But but I think that the unfortunately, like sometimes spiritual people will do that and and use that as a way to to almost put shame on people seeking professional help for yeah um for anything emotional or uh, or mental. You know, like oh, if you just prayed hard enough, then you wouldn't be depressed. Right. So like I but think you that's wouldn't really say that dangerous someone had a broken arm too. You, know, you wouldn't yeah. say that for someone who had a broken arm. Right. Like they would have, you would say, you need to go to a doctor. So I think there's, yeah, the stigma is great. Actually, that bleeds into the next question. How can we support our friends in therapy or help friends fight the stigma of going to therapy? Um, most counselors would even encourage people to bring their support system with them to certain um, sessions. So if you have a, a close friend or family member and maybe they're nervous about therapy, you can go with them if they're okay with that and feel comfortable with that. Um, as far as the stigma, I think the language we use has a big impact on that. 
Um, kind of like we talked about the word toxic being thrown around, the word crazy gets thrown around a lot too. And that makes people think about themselves in a certain way and not want to seek help and have that stigma attached to them. Also, um, seeing the person as a person first and not their disorder. We don't call people depressed people or schizophrenic people. They are people that struggle with those issues and putting them them first rather than defining them by that uh, issue. I'll take the next question. How, could you comment briefly on connections you see with mental and physical health? I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I know there are doctors that will talk about the, you know, the endorphins and the effect that those will have on you by, you know, just going for a walk, being outside, going for a run. Emily, I know you told me, I can't remember the name of the book, but the book that you were reading on burnout and dealing with stress, the, the, it comes from the, what's the book called? I think it's just it's burnout, but it's talking about the stress cycle and like that, you know, anything that's stressful gives us a big shot of cortisol. And usually in, you know, when, when you would run from a lion, you would then burn off that cortisol. You would resolve your stress cycle. Right. We don't do that anymore because like our stress yeah. is most. You walk from your desk to your car. <laughs> you go to the water cooler. It's not quite And the then you thing. sit in your chair at home. Yeah. So like you don't, you don't deal with the stress physically the way you would have in, in ancient society. Uh, and so like we're, we're just not built to handle it physically the way our body would have handled it physically uh, a few hundred years ago. So th that's a, it was a really interesting. I haven't, I haven't read the book yet. Emily pointed it out to me, but I was really fascinated by that idea. I'll leave it there. I want to thank you all for, oh. no, no, I was just going to say there are also physical, like I, I personally have fibromyalgia, so that affects me physically, but it also will sometimes, it, it, it runs right along with depression and fatigue and, and things like that. So there are things that you may have physically that you may need to have an actual physical checkup to see what your thyroid is doing. What You know, there are lots of things that, that are just so combined. Diet for me makes a huge difference in how I feel physically and also emotionally, you know, which I wish I did better at it. But so I, I think there's a ton of connections with that that people need to be aware of. Yeah. I'll close this in a word of prayer. Thank you all so much for being here. Next week, we're going to talk about aging. Uh, that was fun because everybody I asked if they wanted to be on a panel on aging were like, why are you asking me? Um, but we'll talk about it because I think it's something we don't talk about in our society. So let's have a word of prayer together. Thank you all for being here. Lord Jesus, we thank you again for this time to gather together uh, to discuss this really important topic about our emotional and our mental well-being and, and leaning into the commands you give us to love you with all of our mind, to renew our minds, to think of things that are lovely and pure and true. And God, we ask now for your help in that. Uh, we realize, Lord, that uh, you give us things like your scriptures and things like prayer and mindfulness to, to help us uh, re renew and refresh our minds daily. You give us one another to lean on and to encourage. Uh, you also give us professional help. You give us uh, people who really have a passion for these things and, and a knowledge for these things that can help us uh, get even better when it, when we run into things that uh, that we can't handle on our own. And so, so God, I pray that your spirit would go with us and give us the courage and the wisdom to know uh, what to do and, and what situations, all for the purpose of being re reformed into the image of Jesus, uh, because not only is our physical and our mental health important, uh, they are important because of uh, what it is that you, you did for us and because of the physical uh, impact you had in coming to earth physically and, and the physical resurrection you will provide for us at the end of time. So help us to keep all this in mind. Help us to go from here encouraged and encouraging each other. And it's all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.